Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In the first part of the book of Revelation, there are a series of seven messages from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven churches, one at a time. And that very fact should cause us to know that churches are a lot more significant than this world, certainly, and sometimes even many of us who are followers of Jesus tend to recognize. Um, churches are not irrelevant. They're not, you know, just sort of uh, superfluous and, and don't really make a difference and aren't that important. No, churches... Jesus has established churches throughout the world to accomplish his mission of world redemption. And so churches rank very highly in terms of his priority uh, scheme, and they should also in ours. In our thinking, in our praying, in our living our lives, um, we don't want to underestimate um, the church because Jesus has established it to accomplish his purposes. So these seven messages were... Coming up to message number three, the third church. So, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the Lord of the churches has a message for you here and for me. And we know that because Jesus says, let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that that tells us a couple things. It tells us, for one thing, these, these messages aren't ultimately just from human authors, a human author named John. Ultimately, this message comes from the Spirit of God himself. The other thing we can see here is that these messages were not simply intended for the original recipients only, but also for us, for you and for me, if we have ears to hear. That is, if we want to hear what God would say to us. And in order to hear the message that he has for us, to hear that clearly, we need to first make sure we understand what it was that Jesus was saying to this church in Pergamum. And really, it's 
pretty alarming. Think of this. Jesus says that Pergamum, where they live, their town, is where Satan has his throne. Wow. That's intimidating. And and that means it's a very evil place. It's a very evil place, a place where evil things happen. And behind those evil things, these are not just evil things that people are doing on their own. Behind those evil things, there are evil supernatural forces at work. The city of Pergamum, historically we know that this city was famous for many impressive temples, including some temples uh, dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. It was well known uh, for this. Just like today, you know, New York City is well known for Broadway shows, and Las Vegas is well known for gambling. Pergamum was known as a center of pagan worship festivals. And it's probably the issue of emperor worship that got these people into trouble. Because, well, Christians throughout the Roman Empire, but it would be especially a big deal in Pergamum, Christians refused to do what every good Roman citizen was expected to do, which was to take a pinch of incense and offer it on a Roman altar and say the words, Caesar is Lord. And Christians wouldn't do that because they said, no, Jesus is Lord. And that got them into a lot of hot water, especially in a place like Pergamum where emperor worship was a big deal. This is probably probably what cost this guy named Antipas his life. Jesus calls him my faithful witness, and that word witness is where we get the word martyr from, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And all of this is a reminder to us that following Jesus is not a safe thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the only way that leads to life and eternal joy. But following Jesus is not safe. And yet these people, they held on to Jesus even in the face of death threats. And Jesus says to them, well done. Well done. You are holding fast to my name. They are holding on. They're not letting go. They're holding on even though people are basically threatening their lives and following through on that thread in some cases. I want to be like that. I hope you want to be like that. To, to hold on to Jesus, even in the face of a death threat, even in the face of somebody holding a gun to my head or a knife to my throat, who would say, deny Jesus or die, I hope and pray that God will give me the courage to say, okay, go ahead, because I'm not going to deny him. So, in the face of these very direct frontal assaults 
they remain true. And that's beautiful. Sadly, though, it's not the whole story. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. (sighs) He says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, do you see the contrast there? Holding on to Jesus in direct threats, but some now, instead of holding on to Jesus, are holding on to something else. They're holding on to this teaching of Balaam instead. What does that mean? Well, the story of Balaam is told back in the book of Numbers, uh, beginning in chapter 22 all the way through chapter 31. It's, it's really an amazing uh, account. Let me just give you a quick summary of what happens. So back in the time when the people of Israel were first coming out of Egypt and were going to be entering into the land that God had promised to give them to the descendants of Abraham, back when they were coming in, there was a king of Moab named Balak, and he was scared to death because he had heard all the reports of what these people had done in Egypt, and now they're coming, and basically every enemy they face, they just are victorious. And they're coming into the promised land, and so he's afraid, so he, he figures, well, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll figure out a way to beat them, and he hires a pagan prophet named Balaam. And what he wants to do is pay Balaam to curse the Israelites, thinking that if he can do that, then he will be able to then take his army in and defeat the Israelites and wipe them out. That's his plan. But it's, uh, it's kind of comic, actually. Every time Balaam opens his mouth, instead of speaking words of cursing, he speaks words of blessing. God overrules him and causes him to speak words of blessing instead of cursing. So, that didn't work. The dire- Balaam's direct strategy to curse them and enable a military victory didn't work, so he didn't give up, though. He just changed his tactics. And instead of a direct curse and military attack, what he did was he advised Israel's enemies to try a more subtle approach. So here's what they did. They rounded up some very attractive women and sent them, and they invited the Israelite men to join them in a party. But the party was really a pagan worship festival involving food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now be sure you see it. The Israelites 
who consistently defeated their enemies in face-to-face direct combat in the face of temptation caved completely. Now, what's this got to do with the church in Pergamum? What does this have to do with us? It's simply this. Satan's strategy has not changed. And if he can't, it, it's what we could call his Balaam strategy. And if he can't get us to let go of Jesus in a direct frontal assault, he doesn't give up. He just uses a different approach. One that is sneaky. One that is subtle. And one that is enticing. He could not get the Christians in Pergamum to let go of Jesus, to deny Jesus by threatening their lives. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We are not going. I don't care if you kill us. We're not going to deny Jesus. They couldn't get him to let go of Jesus that way. So he gave them something else to hold on to instead. Some kind of false teaching from these Nicolaitans who said it was okay. It's okay to go to the local temples. It's okay to go to those places devoted to those pagan gods. It's okay to eat the pagan barbecue. It's okay to indulge in a little pagan sex. You know, we're thinking, what? What what teaching could possibly convince professing Christians that that's okay? What could do that? Well, it probably went something like this. And we know this because it shows up in other places, like uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. They probably had these, you know, respected teacher types saying something like this. Hey, you guys, don't, you know, if if your pagan friends invite you to go with them to those pagan temples, that's okay. In fact, you know, that's a good way to show how tolerant you are, how accepting you are of your friends, that you're not all legalistic and judgmental like some Christians. And look, we know it's not a problem with God because we know idols are nothing. They're, they're f- fake. There's only one real God. We all know that. And so if you eat the meat that's sacrificed on the altar to some silly idol, don't sweat it. That can't hurt you. No big deal. And oh yeah, you know that sexual stuff that goes on there? Eh, you know, don't worry about that either. Because there's nothing you can do with your body that will affect your soul. Jesus died to save our souls. So what we do with our bodies, no big deal. It was a lie. But it was a very convincing lie. A very attractive lie, especially when it was mixed with some really tasty food and sexual pleasure, and a whole lot of cultural pressure. Because that's what you did to get along in Pergamum. You went along. And that's how you went along. 
So the lesson for us is, watch out. Watch out. Don't be careless. Don't let your guard down. Stay alert. Be on your guard against all attacks against your faith, against you holding on to Jesus. Not just the obvious in-your-face attacks. Especially be on guard against the subtle attacks. See, if you're a believer in Jesus today, if you're a believer in Jesus, the biggest threat you face is probably not a direct assault. You know, like I was saying earlier, somebody holding a gun to your head or a knife to your throat and saying, deny Jesus or die. That's probably not the biggest threat to your faith that you're going to face. The bigger threat will be a far more subtle, indirect threat. Some subtle, attractive temptation that tempts you to turn away from Jesus and hold on to something else to give you joy, happiness, security, something else. And and to engage or to believe or to adopt something that sounds more fun, more satisfying, and, above all, more acceptable to your friends. That's what we've got to watch out for. How do we do that? How do we stay alert against these indirect attacks on our faith? Because they're going to come. All right, two lessons. First, to, to stay alert to these attacks, you've got to realize where they're really coming from. You've got to realize where they're really coming from. Probably good if every morning when we got up, we just reminded ourselves, the real battle is not what you're going to see. The real battle is not what we see. The real battle is behind what we see. Let's think about temptation for a minute. What, what happens every time a temptation comes toward us? What, what is it? Okay, what it is at its heart is an invitation to not trust Jesus, but to trust in something else for our ultimate joy, satisfaction, contentment, security, all those things where we are ultimately defined in the Lord and we are tempted, we're attracted to put our confidence in something other than Jesus. And behind every one of those temptations, there are spiritual intelligences who are committed to your destruction. Even though you can't see them. Look at Ephesians 6. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6. This is our, our main passage on what you call spiritual warfare. Notice what it says. Finally, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the tricks 
of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The people we see are not our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the invisible realm. That's our real enemy. So, part of the lie in Pergamum was that it's okay to go and eat in an idol temple at an idol festival because idols aren't real. There's only one real God. So don't worry about being in a room with a bunch of stupid statues. They can't hurt you. They're not real. See, like every good lie, there's a, there's a little piece of truth in this. Yeah, it's true. Idols aren't real. They aren't. But there is something real behind them. 1 Corinthians 10.19, Paul says, Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. So behind the unreal idols are real spiritual forces. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not real. Doesn't mean they're not there and doesn't mean they're not actively working against you. You know, we talked about this uh, once before. Have you ever seen like a diagram of the electromagnetic spectrum and how much of it's visible light? It's like this little sliver is visible and a whole bunch of it's invisible. So radio waves, microwaves, every time your cell phone goes off in church, you know, there's this invisible, invisible thing making contact. So we know that just because something's invisible doesn't mean it isn't real. There's all kinds of real things that we can't see. Demons are real. They are real. They exist and they are not funny, cute little cartoon goblins with pitchforks and horns. They are powerful, angelic beings who were created good and rebelled against God, and they now seek to undermine God's will at every opportunity and to destroy God's people. Now, they're going to lose the war. That's, that's a big lesson of this book of Revelation. They're going to lose the war. But they still attempt to win every single battle they can against God's people. They fight as hard as they can. And so if we're going to defeat them, if we're going to resist, if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to hold on to Jesus, we have to remember how they fight. And one of the common misconceptions, you know, when people think of demonic activity... Almost always we think of things like, you know, scary supernatural phenomena, you know, weird sights and sounds and black magic and demon possession and that sort of thing. And yeah, demons can do those things. But that's not their main strategy. That's not the main way they fight. The main way they try to destroy us is, do you know what it is? It's lies. Lies. 
Look at 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits. Do you think people embrace the teaching of demons because they're demonic? No. It's because they're deceived. Sounds good to me. John 8.44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. He's all about lying. In fact, he'll even use truth to lie to you. He tried that with Jesus. Remember he quoted scripture to Jesus because that's what Jesus was doing to resist him? So he said, oh, well, I can do that too. Here, here's a verse. Completely taking it out of context, completely ripping it out of what God intended it to be. He can use even truth to lie to us. So, staying alert, staying vigilant means being on the lookout for really good lies. And the thing about a lie is, it doesn't sound like a lie. It's plausible. It's convincing. And worst of all, it's probably something we want to believe. See, these people in Pergamum, these Christians, they wanted to believe that it was okay to go out with their friends and eat at the pagan temple. It's like us going to restaurants. I mean, that's how prevalent it was. You want to go hang out with your friends? You go to the temple. And you eat there. You eat the food sacrificed to the idols. They wanted to believe that a little sexual fooling around was just some harmless fun that didn't hurt anybody. All kinds of people in the world have bought into that lie. Ah, sex outside of marriage, pornography, no big deal. It's what they want to believe. It's not what God says. So, when someone told them a convincing lie, hey, it's okay, they bought it. It was easy to buy it. So you got to remember this. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be lied to, and you're going to be lied to by someone who's a really, really good liar. They're so good at it. And he knows what lies you personally are the most prone to believe. If you don't want to fall for those lies, you got to keep alert for them. Keep a lookout. You say, well, wait a minute. If it's a really good lie, how am I going to know? How am I supposed to recognize this really good lie? Ah, good, great question. Lesson number two. Remember to fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. Remember to fight your spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. Any attack on your faith is a spiritual attack. And so your defense must be a spiritual defense. We are so dependent on the resources God has given us to be able to win these battles. God has given us spiritual weapons to defend ourselves against the lies that would turn us away from Jesus. 
We have to use them, though. It doesn't do any good to have a weapon if you don't use it and you don't know how to use it. So what are these weapons? Okay, Ephesians 6 again, back to our passage on spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Hold on. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And all the flaming darts of the evil one, I'm pretty sure, are lies. Those are the lies we have to extinguish. Okay, so Paul is writing from prison. He's probably looking at a Roman guard who's, you know, keeping him there in prison. And he sees the armor that he's wearing, and he, that gives him an idea. And so he, he connects that to these realities. So the pieces of armor are obviously symbols. What are they symbols of? Okay, if you think about it, Every piece of armor here, one way or another, points us to trusting in the truths of God's Word. Think about it. You buckle on the belt of truth. Righteousness, peace, salvation. How do we experience those? By believing the truth. The gospel. Taking up the shield of faith, what does that mean? It means relying on the truth. The lie comes and you say no, like Jesus did. This is what the truth is. And I'm going to rely on that. And the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. That's where we get the truth. So the first weapon, the first spiritual weapon for unmasking Satan's lies is the truth of God's Word. The better the better you know the teaching of God's Word and the better you rely on the teaching of God's Word, the better you will recognize the lies and not fall for them. It's just like what's true of counterfeit currency. You know, to, to learn how to spot a counterfeit, you don't study counterfeits. You study the real thing. And once you really know the real thing, then when a counterfeit comes, you can see it and recognize it. So... Practically speaking, practically speaking, staying alert means what? It means really knowing our Bibles. It really does. Now, would you like to know a shortcut for learning the truths of God's Word? Would you like to know? There isn't one. There are no shortcuts. We just have to do the hard work of reading and studying and learning the Word of God. We've got to make the effort. It takes time and it takes effort. And sometimes people will say, oh, I can't read the Bible, it's too hard. That's a lie. That's baloney. If you can read a newspaper, you can read the Bible. If you can read a novel, you can read the Bible. Now, if you really can't read, there are Bible apps that you can get for free and put on your phone or your tablet. There are 
websites you can go to. There are Bibles on CD, and you can listen to God's Word. You say, well, I don't understand everything. Well, yeah, I don't know if you ever took like a class where you read a textbook, and the first time you read it, you didn't get it. What did you do? You say, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to flunk this class. No. You either asked the teacher, or you asked a friend, or you got in a study group or something, and you worked at it till you figured it out, till you understood it. That's the way you learn stuff. And that's what we got to do with our Bibles. You may not understand everything you read or hear first time. That's okay. Just keep reading. Just keep listening. And really, the main truths, the main truths are not that hard to understand. We can do this. You can do this. If you're not, if you're not getting a regular diet of God's word, of God's truth in your life, you're setting yourself up to fail. You just are. Especially if instead of, you know, feeding on God's word, you're feeding on all kinds of cultural messages, which is very easy to do. But if we don't know the truth, and if we don't love the truth, we're setting ourselves up to fall for Satan's lies. That's what he's doing. He's lying to you. And then the other main spiritual weapon comes in the very next verse there in Ephesians 6, verse 18. It'll leap right out at you. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Notice that. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Saints, just fellow believers in Jesus. Consistent, persistent prayer. Prayer for ourselves, prayer for each other. Why do we need to pray? Because we can't fight our spiritual battles in our own strength. We can't do it. We need our Lord with His sharp two-edged sword to cut through the lies, help us see them, help us love the truth. See, you and I, we don't love the truth apart from a work of God in our lives. That's why we have to pray for that. That's why we have to pray for our brothers and sisters. We need this. And if prayer, if we're not doing this, well, why aren't we? Why, why does prayer tend to be something we neglect? I mean, you, you can make a room full of Christians very guilty. All you got to do is say, well, do you think you pray enough? Everybody goes, no. It's a real, real easy guilt trip. Okay, I don't want to do that, but ask yourself, if you don't pray more, why don't you? I'm afraid that there may be many reasons, but I'm afraid that a big reason might be this. We just don't take the battle that seriously. We don't really believe it's actually a matter of life and death that we pray for one another. We don't really believe that we're so stupid that we're going to fall for some lie that's going to get us to let go of Jesus. We don't really believe that what's at stake, what's really at stake is actually at stake. And we need to believe that. Or we think prayer's not going to make a difference. See, that, there it is, lies. Here you go, whew, prayer doesn't make a difference. Here you go, whew, you don't need it. Here, don't, don't tell your friends what your needs are. Holy cow, they'll think you're a loser if you tell them the battle you're really struggling for, with. That's a lie. Imagine this. 
Imagine you got, there's a platoon of soldiers. They're about to go into the biggest battle they've ever fought. And their commanding officer comes to them and says, okay, you guys are going in against the most clever, the most well-equipped enemy you have ever faced. Here's what you need to do. As soon as you encounter the enemy and find out where they are and what they're doing, you radio headquarters immediately. And we will send you all the artillery firepower and all of the air cover that you're going to need to win. Can you imagine those soldiers saying, you know, this radio is kind of heavy. I don't think I'll take it. Yeah, radio headquarters, what do we need them for? (laughs) Yeah, jets, bombs, artillery. (laughs) Who needs it? We got this. Can you imagine? But isn't that what we do if we don't pray? Isn't that what we're doing? These are our weapons. These are our weapons. The most dangerous battles you face are not the battles you can see. They are the subtle lies that entice your mind and your heart away from Jesus. To win the battles, we've got to use the weapons God has given us. And don't miss, I, I would love to preach for another half an hour on this, but I can't. Did you notice it's a group effort? Pray for all the saints, your fellow believers. The Word tells us that we are to teach the Word to one another. We're to speak the truth to one another. We're to admonish one another with the truth. And it tells us to pray for one another. If you go it alone, you will almost certainly fail. But if you, if you fight with others, you will succeed. So let's remember what's at stake here, okay? What's at stake? Holding on to Jesus, admiring Him, trusting Him, treasuring Him, relying on Him, receiving from Him everything He wants to give us. So be be aware, beware, beware. Be wary of anything, any teacher, preacher, author, book, movie, song, friend, beware of anyone or anything, no matter how convincing, beware of anything that would lead you away from Jesus, holding on to Him, and somehow get you focused on something else. He is our only hope. He alone is glorious. He alone is worthy of your deepest devotion. He alone will never fail you. Hold on to Him no matter what. And watch out. Keep alert. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You, the living Word, have given us Your own very presence, Your own Holy Spirit to enable us to fight these battles, these subtle battles against the evil one who wants to tear us away from You, wants to get us to do trivial stuff instead of doing Your will. Lord, thank You that You have given us everything we need to win. You've given us Your Word. You've given us access to Your throne in prayer. And You've given us one another. 
So help us fight. Help us fight the battles together and give us victory, Lord, for our good and ultimately for your glory. And Father, if there's anybody here who has yet to say yes to Jesus, has yet to put their trust in him as the supreme treasure of their life, may today be that day for them. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.